Section 23 of A Brief History of Forestry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Brief History of Forestry by Bernard Fernow. Great Britain and Her Colonies. Historical Inquiries Concerning Forests and Forest Laws by Percival Lewis, 1811, gives a full account of the practices in the old banned forests. English Forests and Forest Trees, 1853, Anonymous, gives an interesting account of the old forests and their history. Our Forests and Woodlands by John Nisbet, 1900, has a chapter on the historical development of forest laws. William Schlich, Manual of Forestry, Volume 1, 3rd Edition, 1906, brings in convenient form an amount of conditions in various parts of the British Empire. Schwabach, Forstliche Zustande in England. Zeitschrift für Fürst und Jagdwesen, 1903, is an account of forest conditions from the pen of a practical observer. B. Ribbentrop, Forestry in India, 1900, also various reports of the forest departments of the various British colonies. It is a remarkable fact that the nation which can boast of the most extensive forest department in one of her colonies has at home not yet been able to come to an intelligent conception even, not to speak of application, of proper forest policy or forest economy. One of the English authorities on the subject writes still in 1900, With so much land of poor quality lying uncultivated in many parts of the British Isles, the apathy shown toward forestry in Britain is one of the things that it is impossible to understand. If we should venture to seek for an explanation, we would find it in geographical and physical conditions, but still more in personal and political characteristics historically developed, such as also in the United States, make progress of forestry slower than it would otherwise be. Due to her insular position, with which in part the development of her naval supremacy is connected, England can readily supply her needs by importations. Situated within the influence of the Gulf Stream, the climate is much milder than her northern location would indicate, and is in no respect excessive. The topography is most gentle, except in Scotland and Wales, and the river flow even all the year. Hence, the absence of forest cover has not been felt in its physical influences. Britons, Picts, Scots, Scandinavians, Anglo-Saxons, and Normans are the elements which have amalgamated to make the English people. Through endless warfare and political struggle, the three countries— England, Scotland, and Ireland, had by the year 1600 come under one ruler, although final legislative union with Scotland did not take place until 1707, and with Ireland not until 1800. Theoretically, forming a constitutional monarchy, practically an aristocracy with republican tendencies, the history of the islands has been a struggle, first to establish race supremacy, then to secure the ascendancy of the nobility and landholders over the king and the commoners, in which the former have been more successful than the barons in other parts of Europe. Politically, the Englishman is an individualist, jealous of his private interests and unwilling to submit to government interference for the public welfare. Hence, state forestry, which is finally the only solution of the forestry problem, appears objectionable. Commercial and industrial enterprise, rather than economic development, appeals to him. The practical issue of the day, rather than the demands of a future, and systematic preparation for the same, occupy his mind. 
he lacks as mr roseberry points out scientific method and hence is wasteful moreover he is conservative and self-satisfied beyond the citizens of any other nation hence if all the wisdom of the world point new ways he will still cling to his accustomed ones in the matter of having commissions appointed to investigate and report and leaving things to continue in unsatisfactory condition he reminds one of spanish deletoriness this would appear to us the reasons for the difficulty which the would-be reformers experience in bringing about economic reforms one forest conditions caesar's and strabo's descriptions agree that great britain was a densely wooded country the forest area seems to have been reduced much less through long-continued use than through destruction by fire and pasture and by subsequent formation of moors so that it is now excepting that of portugal the smallest of any european nation in proportion to total area and excepting that of holland in proportion to population of the one hundred and twenty one thousand three hundred and eighty square miles which great britain and ireland represent less than four per cent or three million acres eight hundred and eighty thousand in scotland three hundred and three thousand in ireland are forested one fourteenth of an acre per capita but there are nearly thirty-three per cent of wastelands namely over twelve million acres of heaths moors and other wastelands capable of forest growth and another twelve million acres partly or doubtfully so while the agricultural land and crops and pasture comprises about forty-eight million acres the waste areas reforested it is believed could meet the consumption now supplied by importations notably in scotland extensive heaths and moors of many hundred square miles in the northern highlands and the grampian mountains well wooded in olden times the woods having been eradicated supposedly for strategic reasons are now without farms or forests and are mainly used for shooting preserves in the last thirty years the land under tillage has continuously decreased and now represents less than twenty five per cent of the whole land area grasslands occupying thirty eight per cent the agricultural land as well as the mountain and heathlands are to the largest extent owned by large proprietors in eighteen seventy six eleven thousand persons owned seventy two per cent of the total area of the british islands with the exception of sixty seven thousand acres of crownlands the entire forest area is owned privately and that mostly by large landed proprietors there being no communal ownership except that the municipality of london owns a forest area epping forest devoted to pleasure and the water board of liverpool has begun to plant some of its catchment basins practically the entire wood supply is imported and the rate of importation is rapidly increasing while in eighteen sixty four it was three point four million tons in eighteen ninety two seven point eight million tons worth ninety two million dollars in eighteen ninety nine ten million tons and a hundred and twenty five million dollars in nineteen o two it had grown to one hundred and thirty eight million dollars and in nineteen o six to a hundred and forty one million seven hundred million cubic feet in which seven point four million of wood manufactures against which an export of nineteen million mainly wood manufactures must be offset this makes england the largest wood importer in the world germany coming next and the amount paid to other countries exceeds the value of her pig iron output nearly ninety per cent of the import is coniferous material from sweden russia and canada the home product mostly oak ties mine props etc 
satisfies about one-sixth of the consumption. In addition to timber and lumber, over ten million dollars of wood pulp and sixty million dollars of by-products are imported. The total wood consumption per capita is between twelve and fourteen cubic feet, half of what it was fifty years ago. Pine is the only native conifer of timber value, and oak is the most important native deciduous tree found mostly in coppice or in old, overmature, straggling pasture woods. Compact, larger forest areas are entirely absent, but there are many small plantations and parks. For, while Englishmen have not been foresters, they have been active tree planters, and the mild climate has permitted the introduction of many exotics, especially American conifers. Most of these plantings have been for park and game purposes. The most noted forest plantations are found in Scotland. Among them the large plantations of the Duke of Atoll, begun in 1728, of at one time over 10,000 acres, the ducal woodlands now covering over 20,000 acres, the pinery of 25,000 acres belonging to the Countess of Sealfield, the best-managed forest property, partly in natural regeneration, and others. But these plantations, too, are mostly widely spaced and trimmed, hence not producing timber of much value, so that timber of British production is usually ruled out by architects. 2. Development of Forest Policies The Saxons and Normans were primarily hunters, and this propensity to the chase has impressed itself upon their forest treatment into modern times. The Teutonic Saxons undoubtedly brought with them the feudal and communal institutions of the Germans, under which territory for the king's special pleasure in the chase was set aside as forest, and this exclusive right and privilege was on other territory extended to the vassals, while the commoners were excluded from the exercise of hunting privileges on these grounds. The Normans not only increased the lands under ban, but they increased also in a despotic manner the penalties and punishments for infraction of the forest laws, and enforced them more stringently than was done on the continent. The feudal system was developed to its utmost. Besides forests, in which the king alone had exclusive rights, and in which a code of special laws administered under special courts was applied, there were set aside chases, hunting reserves without the pale of the forest laws, parks, smaller enclosed hunting grounds, and warrens, privileged by royal grant or prescription as preserves for small game. Whole villages were wiped out, or lived almost in bondage to satisfy this taste for sport. In the forests, of which in Elizabeth's time not less than seventy-five distinct ones were enumerated, withdrawing an immense area from free use, both vert and venison, wood and game, belonged to the king, a host of officers, stewards, verderers, foresters, regarders, agisters, woodwards, exercised police duties, and oppressed and ground the people by extortions, while special courts, woodmote, swainmote, court of justice seat, enforced these savage and cruel laws. The first of these laws was supposed to date from Canute the Great in 1016, but was eventually found to be a forgery perpetrated by William I in order to lend historical color to his assertion of forest rights. A partial reduction of forests and a modification of the cruelty and unreasonableness of the laws was obtained by the Charta de Foresta in 1225 which formulated the laws into a code, and again by the Forest Ordinance of 1306. 
but not until 1483, under Edward IV, were the people living within forests permitted to cut and sell timber, and to fence in for seven years portions of the reserved territory. The last territory was aforested, in other words, withdrawn for purposes of the chase, under Henry VIII, but he had to secure the consent of the freeholders. The long Parliament in 1641 stopped at least the extension of forests and modified the application of the laws to a more reasonable degree. The forest laws are still on the statutes, but have fallen into desuetude. The last forest court of justice seat was held under Charles I. The forests themselves have also almost entirely vanished, some being abolished as late as Queen Victoria's time by Act of Parliament. But the last action under the forest laws was had in 1862, when the Duke of Atoll tried to establish his right as forester for the crown. A full account of the forest laws is contained in Manwood's volume, title page of which is here reproduced. A treatise of the laws of the forest, wherein is declared not only those laws as they are now in force, but also the original and beginning of forests, and what a forest is in his own proper nature, and wherein the same doth differ from a chase, a park, or a warren, with all such things as are incident or belonging therein too, with their swirl proper terms of art. Also, a treatise of the pure allay, declaring what pure allay is, how the same first began, what a pure allay man may do, how he may hunt and use his own pure allay, how far he may pursue and follow after his chase, together with the limits and bounds as well of the forest as the pure allay, collected as well out of the common laws and statutes of this land, as also out of sundry learned ancient authors, and out of the Assises of Pickering and Lancaster by Ian Manwood, whereunto are added the statutes of the forest, a treatise of the swirl officers, of verderers, regarders, and foresters, and courts of attachments, swanimote and justice seat of the forest, and certain principal cases, judgments and entries of the Assises of Pickering and Lancaster, never heretofore printed for the public. London, printed for the Society of Stationers, Anno Dominum 1615, cum prelegio. In Scotland the same usages and laws existed, only very much less rigorously enforced, until, in 1681, the extension of forests was discontinued by Parliamentary Act. It will be understood that the term forest did not only distantly refer to woodland, and that no economic policy had anything to do with the laws— only, incidentally, was forest growth protected and preserved for the sake of the chase, the same medieval policy which still largely animates the forest policy of the state of New York. The woods outside the forest, which had mainly served for the raising of hogs and for domestic needs, experienced at various times unusual reduction by fire. General Monk, among others, laid waste large areas on the Scottish borderland in Cromwell's time. The first serious inroads by extensive fellings occurred under Edward III in the first half of the fourteenth century to enrich the treasury for the French wars. Again, Henry VIII in the sixteenth century, when he seized the church properties for his own use, turned them into cash. A hundred years later, James I reduced the forest area, especially in Ireland, by his colonization schemes. Yet both Henry VIII and James I are on record as encouraging forest planting for utility. Charles I, James's successor, 
always in need of cash, alienated many of the crown forests and turned them into cash, besides extorting money through the forest courts. During the revolution, beginning in 1642 and during Cromwell's reign, a licentious devastation of the confiscated or mortgaged noblemen's woods took place. Finally, under Charles II, the needs for the Royal Navy forced attention to the reduction of wood supplies, and as a result of the agitation to encourage the growth of timber, a member of the newly formed Royal Society was deputed to prepare an essay, which published in 1662 has become the classic work of English forest literature, namely John Evelyn's Silva, or A Discourse of Forest Trees, which has experienced eleven editions. It should, however, be mentioned that an earlier writer, whom Evelyn often quotes, Tougher, before the reign of Elizabeth in 1526, published his Five Hundred Points of Husbandry, a versification in which tree planting received attention. Ever since that time, periodically and spasmodically, the question of forestry has been agitated, without much serious result. From 1775 to 1781, the Society of Arts in London offered gold medals and prizes for tree planting, and in the beginning of the 19th century a revival of arboricultural interest was experienced, perhaps as a result of an interesting report by the celebrated Admiral Nelson on the mismanagement of the Forest of Dean, concern for naval timber giving the incentive, in which he recommended the planting of oak for investment. At that time, a surveyor-general with an insufficient force was in charge of the Crown Forests. In 1809, the management was placed under a board of three commissioners, one of whom, being a member of the Parliament, was to be changed with the administration. Under this management, graft became so rampant that, in 1848, a committee of the House of Commons was appointed, whose report revealed the most astonishing rottenness, placing a stigma on government management such as we still uncover in the United States from time to time. A reorganization took place in 1851. At that time, the Royal Forests and Parks, reduced in extent to about 200,000 acres, showed a deficiency of $125,000, mostly, to be sure, occasioned by the parks. There was then still a tribute of some 600 bucks to be delivered to various personages, as was the ancient usage. At present, there are some 115,000 acres classed as Royal Forest, but only 67,000 acres are really forest consisting of more or less mismanaged woods under the administration, not forest management, of the commissioners of woods and forests with deputy surveyors in charge of the ranges. Although there are a few notable exceptions in the management, it is to be noted that the same stupid ignorance which introduced the clause into the Constitution of the State of New York was enacted into law in 1877 by the English Parliament, forbidding in the new forest all cutting and planting. In 1900, there existed just one planting plan, made by the professional forester, namely for a portion of the Forest of Dean, while now only two other state properties, or two or three private estates, are managed under working plans. In 1887, a committee appointed to inquire into the administration of this property expressed itself most dissatisfied, but a committee of Parliament in 1890 whitewashed the administration and reported that the management was satisfactory. These committees, as well as an earlier one in 1885, were also able to recommend measures for the advancement of forestry. They laid in their recommendations the main stress upon education, but no action followed. 
and it can be said that the government has never done anything for the advancement of forestry in the home country, whatever it may have done for the dependencies. A departmental committee again reported in 1902 with all sorts of recommendations, which have remained unheeded. The interests of forestry as far as the government is concerned are at present committed to the Board of Agriculture, an unwieldy body created in 1889, from which this departmental committee was appointed. There is now, however, a strong movement on foot, led by foresters returned from India, to commit the government to some action with reference to the wastelands and towards providing for educational means. Another committee, appointed in 1908 to inquire into prospects of afforestation in Ireland, reported in favor of acquiring 300,000 acres of wood and 700,000 acres of unplanted land, dwelling especially on the benefit to be secured by providing employment and a check upon immigration of the rural population. Instead of acting upon this proposition, the government redirected the Royal Commission on Coast Erosion, which had issued its first report in 1907, to suspend its inquiry into the inroads of the sea and apply themselves to the inquiry as to whether, in connection with unclaimed lands or otherwise, it is desirable to make an experiment in afforestation as a means of increasing employment during periods of depression, and how and by whom such experiments should be conducted. In 1909, the Royal Commission on Afforestation and Coast Erosion reported at length, proposing the reforestation by a special commission of nine million acres of wasteland, at a rate of 75,000 or 150,000 acres a year to be acquired by purchase, an elaborate plan which so far has remained without result. The government, although various committees have recommended it, has remained also callous in respect to educational policy, except that in 1904 the commissioners of woods and forests instituted a school, one instructor, and the forest of Dean for the education of woodsmen and foremen. As illustrative of the government's peculiar attitude to forest policy in general, we may note a curious anachronism, namely the Act of 1894, which relieves railway companies from liability for damage from locomotive fires, if they can prove that they have exercised all care, although traction engines cannot offer this excuse. The first attempt to secure educational facilities dates to 1884, when a chair of forestry was established in the Royal Engineering College at Cooper's Hill, an institution designed to prepare for service in India purely. Through private subscriptions, another chair of forestry was instituted in 1887 at the University of Edinburgh and several agricultural colleges, noticeably that of Sirenchester, as well as the universities of Cambridge and Oxford, had made provisions for teaching the subject in a way, but outside of Cooper's Hill, no adequate education in forestry was obtainable in Great Britain until 1905. In 1905, the forest department in Cooper's Hill was transferred to Oxford, the three years course, one year to be spent in the forests of Germany or other countries, being as before designed mainly for aspirants to the Indian Forest Service. Now, besides Oxford, some nine other institutions offer courses in forestry, the reason for this educational development being difficult to imagine. The name of Sir William Schlich, a German forester and for some time the head of the Indian Forest Department now in charge of this school, is most prominently connected with the reform movement. Altogether, forest management and silvicultural practice are still nearly unknown in England, and until within a few years the useful idea of working plans had not yet penetrated the minds of owners of estates. 
this apathy is no doubt in part due to the fact that the government is in the hands of the nobility who prefer to keep their shooting ranges and do not see even a financial advantage from turning them into forest as long as they can derive a rent of from ten to forty cents per acre for shooting privileges private endeavor has been active through the two arboricultural societies the royal scotch founded in eighteen fifty four and the royal english beginning its labors in eighteen eighty the transactions of these societies in annual or occasional volumes represented the current magazine literature on forestry since the monthly journal of forestry and estates management which began its career in london in eighteen seventy seven transferred to edinburgh in eighteen eighty four ceased to exist in eighteen eighty five at present a very well-conducted quarterly journal of forestry started in nineteen o seven by the royal english arboricultural society replacing its transactions and that of the irish forestry association also the journal of the board of agriculture occasionally supply the needs of the continuously improving chances for development on forestry lines until within a short time the english professional book literature has been extremely meagre although a considerable propagandist arboricultural and general magazine literature exists schlisch manual of forestry first in three volumes published from eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety five now in its second to fourth edition enlarged to five volumes is the most comprehensive publication another author deserving mention is john nisbet known for his studies in forestry eighteen ninety four who also engrafted continental silvicultural notions into later editions of james brown's the forester an encyclopedic work of merit several german and french works have been translated into english notably k geyer die forstbenutzung r hess der forstschutz and here first waldschutz john crumby brown's sixteen volumes on forests and forestry in various countries may be mentioned among the propagandist literature the arboricultural societies mentioned also make a brave effort to advance professional development of forestry in their publications end of section twenty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia